Welcome to Ahali, a series of conversations where I, Jan Altay, meet with ear-opening thinkers, artists, curators and designers to discuss the future of cultural production. Let's start with what Ahali means. Ahali refers to a community that flows, that doesn't have boundaries, yet nevertheless producing a meaningful togetherness. It is about a culture of being together, and Ahali generates knowledge that is not fixed and always open for newcomers. So, welcome to Ahali Conversations. And we are back. Our second season is pretty much about notions of practice. We will be exploring how cultural producers do their work, whether they are artists, designers, curators or writers. And together we will figure out how they position themselves within the larger context that they inhabit. So welcome back to this new season of Ahali Conversations. We are hosting curator Lucia Pietruisti, and we'll hear her take on inhabiting institutions and much, much wider ecosystems. Lucia was in charge of the public programming at Serpentine Gallery in London when she launched the General Ecology Program. This was not only a program of content as usual, but rather included an in-depth look into the institution's ecological footprint and thus came with a range of challenging questions around environmental responsibilities. We discuss with Lucia the intricacies of maneuvering such realms with severe conventions and bureaucracies. An example she gives is the military in Venice, where they installed the infamous art opera San Ansi Marina for the 2019 Venice Biennale. At the same time, much like throughout our conversation, there is always a multiplicity of positions and perceptions, such as being a group of women who were installing this crazy project while their children were also running around. These discrepancies and collisions of such moments that Lucia renders so beautifully is akin to any cultural practice, and I believe it is by no coincidence that our conversation brings together ecosystems and quantum mechanics. As always, there is an extensive list of references that we cover in our episode notes, so make sure to check out what I believe is becoming an enormously rich bibliography alongside the podcast. And for the more visually oriented, we are always sharing images of works that are mentioned in our Instagram account, ahali.podcast. Welcome everybody. We are in conversation with curator Lucia Pietruisti, who works on issues related to ecology and is best known as the curator of the San Ansi Marina, which won the Golden Lion at the 2019 Venice Biennale, and she's also the founder of the General Ecology Program at the Serpentine Galleries, which could be named as a strategic cross-organizational effort, incorporating public programs, but also diving into internal infrastructure and networks with an eye on the kind of ecological questions. And General Ecology has presented live events, radio programs, publications, as well as hosting and maybe framing ongoing research projects within itself. Lucia's projects also include the shape of a circle in the mind of a fish, which is, uh, again, an interdisciplinary festival and publication series. One of the co-producers, Filippa Ramos, was also our guest in one of our previous sessions at AHALI. And, I mean, the list goes on, on, but I'll keep it there. And I would like to welcome Lucia. Welcome, Lucia. Thank you so much for having me and for the flowery and florid <laughs> and vast introduction. <laughs> it's merely skimming the surface, I'm sure we'll get to reach more depth today. Uh, but I want to start from where do we catch you? Where are you? 
And also, what are you occupied with at the moment, perhaps? Yeah, well, um, I'm physically currently in my home in London. Mm -hmm. It's kind of been the same for a really long time, except I'm just back from the first month abroad since the pandemic began. Uh, I was in Italy. So readjusting slightly to even just talking about professional questions because it was so hot. Mm. Uh, in the Italian summer that I got probably very little done. But it, from a sort of professional standpoint, and depending on when you edit and release this episode, I may or may not have already transformed my relationship with the Serpentine into one of more kind of freelance consulting mm. in order to, which is what I'll be working on for the next few months, try to emerge general ecology as its own organization. So maintaining its relationship with the Serpentine as its incubator and its founding partner, and as a co-presenting partner for the general ecology project at the Serpentine itself. But I also want this kind of uh, the mode of general ecology to com to begin to really try out the strategy of distributed programming that I've been talking about for so long, kind of practicing on and off so far. So you ask a question at a moment of great transformation, I think. I don't know mm. what the future will look like, but I have a sense of what I would like it to, where I would like it to go. And I mean, it's like I had along my line of thought, I had some notes about your approach in kind of inhabiting institutional frames and reinventing kind of new structures from within. But maybe now that you touched it, we should start from there. Would you like to tell us a little bit about that story? Because I, I've, I mean, it sounds super interesting, the way a programming kind of emerges and develops to become something of its own, an institution of its own. Yes, absolutely. So it was, it's true, the general ecology was kind of born with a certain degree of actual, actually with quite a degree of, I suppose, independence and autonomy, but was born within the kind of incubating structure or the nesting structure of an art institution, the Serpentine. And part of the reason why that was possible, I think, was that as an individual, I had been working there for a really long time. So in terms of figuring out what those avenues to get some things done or what things, what subtle changes can then bring about larger changes later and so on, in terms of identifying all of those, I think I had quite an, a useful amount of experience really knowing all the ins and outs of how an, in, an institution really works. And I proposed General Ecology as a project for the Serpentine to try and tie together what we do in terms of programmatic concerns and what we do in terms of organizational structure and systems kind of management and and also collaborative relationships with other organizations mm -hmm. to try and bring those two things together with a focus Almost like bring those two things together and make them both look at the environmental crisis. And over time, there were some strategic decisions that were made around, you know, first we started with a program like The Shape of a Circle in the Mind of a Fish with Filippa that you mentioned. These are very kind of mm -hmm. intellectually seductive programs, very interesting, very fascinating when you're thinking about the consciousness of a plant or animal intelligence or something like this. It's, it's programs that are easy to be liked. And so the idea was really to kind of work with a, a developing and growing community of audience members who are interested in subjects around a kind of more than human paradigm or around kind of broader environmental concerns and questions in order to really kind of foster the 
an ongoing research work that the Serpentine would be committing to, to the environmental. And then from that point on, and I've, you know, spoken about this in various shapes before, but from that point on, when the audience starts to reflect back at you as an institution, an image of Mm -hmm. an institution that has committed a certain amount of time and research to this thing, then you as an institution start to kind of also live, sort of step into that role or live into that role or feel a responsibility towards existing within that role as well, then catalyzes or makes possible certain kinds of, you know, bureaucratic, slow, systemic, institutional, Mm -hmm. boring, if you like, transformations on the level of the infrastructure in order to match up the what we talk about and how we do it, right? So it and it takes a lot longer to actually do the carbon analysis and the although or or even to establish long term uh, collaborative relationships with other organizations. But what I've been working over the last uh, few years on is really like try as much as possible to work with organizations that have an interest in art, but that very much do not work within the arts field, but that are committed to the environmental. And in those exchanges, what are the skills and the knowledge forms and also mistranslations? Like where are the gaps? Where are the potentials? Where is, where are the things that we just don't spend enough time together to figure out? Mm together yet and what is lost in translation as well perhaps a hundred percent a hundred percent there's like one of the things that i've been thinking about so much recently is because i think you probably know as well as as i do a lot of the times the question on any kind of panel or symposium or whatever tends to be like what is art's role Mm. in the environmental emergency how can art contribute to the issues of climate justice and climate balance what is the artist's responsibility all those questions And I think if I started to almost like stupidly, but naively somehow, like really try genuinely ask myself this question and answer it kind of publicly in an open forum, ask it from, ask it to myself and try and answer it publicly in open Mm. forums. And I found that the more that question gets raised, the more you find that environmental organizations think of art, particularly scientific ones, think of art as like public understanding of science. And it's like a huge role that art can play, of course, you know, make something that is really complicated and boring, beautiful, or really impactful or really shocking. But the environmental crisis rests on so many kind of entangled planetary systems yeah. that to sort of put it all on the level of like consciousness raising is not the only potential. It's 100% necessary, but it's actually not the only thing that artists can do. And so it's on, it's on that level of like, well, what are the other things? How can it disguise itself? Like, how can an artwork disguise itself as something else? How can it disguise itself as an artwork within the art kind of environment to sort of sprout and test something out and then emerge in in another field? You know, it's all those kinds of experimentations and to bring those kinds of questions into an institution and go like, can we be the kind of institution that supports these things that may or may not be art, but they're made within the context of art? Anyway, who asks Mm. ourselves? Who asks the question, what is art, what is it? doesn't matter. As we like at a highly often referred to as not, not art. Not, not art, exactly. Go think, Stephen. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, and at this point, usually I'm sort of tend to be bunched in the group of individuals who think that art always needs to have a kind of purpose or mission. Mm-hmm. And I'm really not saying that. I think artists, 
art has a purpose or mission, even if it's not a kind of stated. Absolutely. Even if it's an aesthetic one, because art holds the memory, the collective memory, the kind of not the embodied knowledge of this time of what it means to be alive. I mean, it, it does it does all those things, even if it doesn't try to. So I don't think that all art needs to be yeah. um, dedicated to one thing or another. It's, it just happens to be the f focus of my own sense of purpose and my own kind of sense of direction. And also, obviously, as in every field, there are parameters, there are kind of changing relevancies, there are all these things. But nonetheless, at the end of the day, I still call it knowledge production or cultural production for lack of a better word. Mm -hmm. uh, but what art or poetry in a way produces or manifests in the world has big significance uh, in the way we think, in the way we perceive, in the way we sense or get a sense of the world. And as you said somewhere else, I heard you say like, we are always within a within, and maybe those withins are kind of, can be even more, because there is like, uh, we are inhabiting the planet, we are inhabiting the many systems we have constructed, uh, we are inhabiting the historical lineage of certain approaches, we are inhabiting institutional structures by we, I mean you and like all the other actors that you are encountering as well. I mean, they are, I call them they for lack of, uh, again, not to create a other, but a, a more, let's say, scientific context also has its own withins in terms of constructs that come to have been inhabited, so to say. And then there's also the planet, which is this huge entanglement. So the, like the modern mind, as much as it tries to kind of divide and create these kind of boundaries, I think it implodes or conflates back into one another. And we are in a, I think, very interesting moment where projects such as yours, I call it project as a kind of, not a singularity, but a goal or idea or a projection. They remind us that there is this kind of entanglement which we need to somehow come to terms with or even play with if we think that also. So I'm just curious if you've given some thoughts on the forest fires and from a kind of general ecological perspective, I mean, obviously it's again, the question of immediate advocacy versus deep thinking or how to align those or how do we have to, or how to kind of, they can exist in different time frames, but maybe feed each other as well. Also, it's very much related to the environmental crisis. So. Yeah, it's true. Um, yes and no. And funnily enough, I was invited recently to talk about wildfire and was and realized very. I was surprised myself by realizing that I hadn't actually thought about fires almost at all, with the exception of a little piece of kind of research and work around fire suppression and fire management and how important kind of historical and traditional modes of fire management, which actually allow certain fires and not mm. others. Um, is and how destructive the kind of intense fire suppression that is the current kind of most government's current policy around fire can be in terms of the ecosystem not being able to uh, live. And there you see a kind of, there you see the, the points of tension between like landowners' demands or landowners' position and individual policies versus the kind of infinite complexity of how an ecosystem actually works, like what a fire does in the understory in terms of the renewal of soil and in terms of allowing younger trees to grow and, and so on. So there's a kind of bigger picture that's often missing 
in individual kind of human actions on the planet, mm. which is not very unlike the way that kind of Western medicine treats the symptom rather than the being, right? Rather than the complex system that is an existence. Yeah. Having said that, I haven't really done the, as you say, the deep thinking around uh, around fire, except for the fact that it seems to me, and I, I might, you know, from this very isolated entry point in which I happen to find myself, but it seems to me that in particularly in the discourse of countries that are less affected by climate change and that will be less affected by climate change, which inevitably represent more or less the global north, more or less wealthy countries, that the discourse of a one-off surprise event this year is not there anymore. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this like, it's the hottest, it's been the hottest summer since it's been the wettest flood since it's been this since there was always this element of surprise as though it was new. And then every year it was just worse. And I think this year, particularly with the IPCC, the new IPCC report that just came out a couple of days ago and with the intensity with which and frequency with which these Event, anomalous events are actually happening, that the notion of anomaly is kind of falling off of our vocabulary, which I think is a very useful place to be, just to sort of look at reality in the face. And I say specifically like countries in the global north and least affected, because this is not at all true from the point of view of many other places in the global south, Pacific islands. I mean, this is not true in a huge part of the world. And if you speak with kind of environmentalists that are really involved in climate justice, the notion of a climate apocalypse being somewhere in the future is kind of laughable, not laughable, but sort of tragically false in mm. as much as you will often hear that the beginning of the climate apocalypse was 500 years ago with the with, with kind of colonial expansion and colonization and the destruction of landscapes and indigenous nations around the world and all of this, this stuff. So, so you kind of, I think at this moment, one of the things that your question prompts which actually connects with a piece of research that I'm doing in collaboration with um, a few organizations in the UK is, uh, you know, what are these stories and images of like catastrophe of utopia, of disturbance, of hope, of da da da, and how, and if you kind of look at them across time and across geographies and in relation to one another, where are the, also the tensions? Like who's, who's, who's utopia is someone else's hell? Mm-hmm. How can you hold utopia and hell in the same moment? So, for example, when Bjarke Ingels de designs floating cities for the mega rich after the end of the world, you know, that's a utopia. And you see hydroponic plants and kids on skateboards and everything is organic and everything is amazing. <laughs> you know, what are the hundreds of millions of people that are dead on the outside of that picture? Like, where are the frames of that picture? Yeah. How is utopia and hell actually held in the exact same intention? And how can we learn to actually train our ears and eyes to think those things at the same time as we're hearing this propaganda of libertarian liberation of some sort that is, or kind of liberation, and I mean it in the most ironic or sarcastic of ways, this kind of hell that I suppose like settler colonial racial capitalism with and all the things that you can add to that is kind of presenting to us as an ambition, right? So it's those kinds of tensions between, I suppose, between heaven and hell, <laughs> really broadly, that, that, that come to mind. No, I mean, fair enough. And I think that any notion of ecology needs to incorporate human technologies 
and their byproducts today. So, I mean, you mentioned that it's like the colonial and industrialist or capitalist emergence or tr like this, the moment where it kind of really transitioned, let's say, uh, human civilization's relationship with the planet. From there on, I think it's impossible to not incorporate into these like ways of making and what we have built and what what has been kind of produced and its byproducts to like there's no ecology outside it and in that sense the the term general ecology to me at least always resonates with Bataille's general economy as well you know that something that can incorporate things notions actions and living things species but also objects and stuff matter to like consider in a way a general ecology yeah it, there was a double you know in fact the the name of the project general ecology and i should quote um sort of admit this as i used to at the beginning of the project and then kind of forgot to mention it again comes from a book by a media theorist a sort of edited reader by a media theorist called eric hurl which was sort of positing, I haven't read it in years, but was sort of positing the notion that the ecological principles had been adopted in various other fields of inquiry and fields of study. And the reason why that name, and then I, you know, I was reading the book and then I just kind of had a, literally had a dream and woke up in the morning thinking that that needed to be, I always like everything I've ever done starts with the title. And like, for me, the title kind of gives this burst of creativity and energy around all the places it needs to go. And then I'm really bad at writing like, the description of actual, <laughs> because after that, it just gets really messy. But I remember really waking up and going, oh, that needs to be the title of this kind of amorphous project that I'm thinking about because of this double play with both a kind of not being experts in the ecological, can we think about ecology in general? So from, you know, more plant intelligence through to dolphin communication through to kind of questions around economies, you know, like, the the kind of broadest possible understanding of the word ecology and so ecology in general that's one and generalizing ecology that's the other one and at the same time like taking the ecological principles of feedback of relationship across time and space of interrelationship of interdependence of symbiosis taking all of the of networked kind of being of mutual constituting <laughs> of emergence, all of these concepts, can we take them and kind of generalize them across different pieces of operation? And it's kind of comical because you said mm -hmm. that you're, um, you, that you're interested in kind of institutional framework. What's comical is that I always resisted this. I didn't train as a curator. I never studied curating. I mean, I did, I tried to do like a PhD in curatorial studies and after three months I just kind of dropped out because I it just was like to think a lot about curatorial strategy was just not at all part of my I, it still isn't but then somehow it sort of it by being a work on systems it somehow enters you know maybe it's not curatorial maybe it's just like operational mm. but with a lot of care and a lot of love for like art and support for artists work I suppose but anyways, so that was the double play of general and general. But also I would add to, I mean, care is of course like worth mentioning, but there is also an agenda. And I think we, some of our guests, I observe this as well. Like there's this underplaying of authorship, which I appreciate because everything is done in cooperation. But I think sometimes we should also, at least maybe on behalf of you, I can say it uh, from a distance, I can sense that 
there is an authorship and there is a kind of very collaboratively spirited, but with an agenda and just a parenthesis. I think that that needs <laughs> mentioning it. I, you know, I would describe it slightly differently, but hmm. it's entirely possible. What I would say is that the the entry point into this project for me was literally sort of that sheer it kind of epiphanic, joyful, almost like pleasurable pleasure that is kind of intellectual curiosity. Mm-hmm. So the project went in the spaces where there was that kind of <gasps> feeling of connection, something that makes sense. Another thing that doesn't make sense, I often kind of jump into things I don't know about mm-hmm. before. You know, the ti- it's usually just the title because I don't know anything about it. And then it's sort of as the thing evolves, I'm learning with everybody else. But it does definitely follow this kind of curiosity pattern. So in that sense, maybe the authorship is more like you can follow the path of like a path of curiosity. At the same time, after years of work, not after, but during the period of years of working on ecological questions with artists who are deeply committed, with organizations who are deeply committed, you get more acquainted with the actual issues at hand. And then that commitment becomes a kind of political engaged like genuine sense of mission, mm-hmm. um, which joins a collective one. Yeah. So there's a double sense. One of them is like pure pl- personal pleasure, and the other one is like deep commitment. Yeah, and maybe this could be the moment we link to San Ansi Marina because I think it's kind of at least resonated in the way that the inquiry and maybe I'm just assuming you haven't produced an opera before or curated one. And so maybe we can refer back to it because it's also recently been replayed. I don't know if that's the correct phrase, but so first in Venice and then in Germany recently. So how is, you know, maybe can we hear from you a little bit on how that happened? Yeah, so uh, it's it's actually on, currently on a <laughs> international tour that will last about three years. Wow! And during the COVID time, it also traveled. It went to a music festival in Norway, and then it went to Zurich and Hanover, and I think that's it. And I might be forgetting one. And then it came to Evert Lukenvalde as part of another project that I was curating with Evert Lukenvalde. So it all, everything kind of met. But the, but Sun and Sea was a piece that sort of, let's say before I working on Sun and Sea, I'd worked with one of the three artists, Lina Lapolita, quite a lot on performance based pieces and often music based pieces because Lina tra- is a performance artist trained as a musician, is a singer herself. And that was in the context of the Serpentine, because before being curator of general ecology at the Serpentine, I used to be curator of public programs, which is essentially everything that's time-based. So all the performances, the plays, the films, the music, and so on. And so there was a kind of, the the intention would have anyways moved towards the time-based because of just professional habit. But the piece existed in a shape, had been developed by the artists as part of a residency at uh, Schloss Solitude. Mm. And then presented in Lithuania, in Vilnius once at the National Gallery in these kind of big concentric square, concentric stairs that go up. So the view was already kind of the notion of looking from that, from the top had already been developed and so on. So as, when we arrived in Venice, the, the question of how to present this piece and how it would relate to the city were the most pressing questions. Mm. And we decided to really push on the 
infinite work feeling, the, the infinite loop, the notion that the audience member would never be able to see the beginning or the end of it and that these singers would be singing on this uh, stage that is a beach looked at from above for, you know, maybe eight hours a day without end because we felt that it really kind of, it on a on an instinctive level, we felt that it could really, I suppose, yeah, push on the sense of, the subtle sense of crisis that the libretto and the stage directions kind of hint at. The other things that we decided to do in relation to Venice were when we chose the the space, we chose it partly also because it was inside the context of a military militarized zone of Venice that had never been open to the public. Never. So we had, you know, neighbors of the piece that came to visit it that had never walked in in 45 years of living right next to this militarized zone. We had conflict and kind of constant tensions with the military as well as, you know, as the piece unfolded. So everybody was in a uniform. We were in the kind of hippie art uniform of bikinis and <laughs> with children and so on. And they were in this like very aggressive uniforms, moving our fences and blocking access to our toilets and all this kind of crazy stuff that was happening in the background. And then we decided to work much more deeply with, you know, where the sand would go after the piece and how the piece would relate to the city in different ways and how to work with local volunteers and how to work with local cooperatives on making the various bits around, you know, like the catalog and things like that. So there was a kind of work on the city that it also did. But it's funny, yesterday I was having a really lovely impromptu conversation uh, on the on Zoom with Adrián Rojas, and we ended up talking about scale because obviously his work has this enormous kind of scale. And mm -hmm. he sort of commented that Sun and Sea also sort of emerged at this huge kind of, that within a very small amount of days, the, the scale of the project was big, the scale of its reception was big, that everything was kind of huge. And I found myself thinking for the first time, realizing that that from perception of the piece point of view, that is definitely how the story goes. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Like if you came and visited, it's a large scale project with a large scale kind of response and all of this. But the way that we lived it is very different. Like the way that we lived it was literally five mothers with seven children, like five women of which three mothers with seven children between the ages of one and a half and seven or eight working on a piece that was constructed in such a way that those children could be cared for at the same time as the piece was happening, working in chaos, working on the basis of kind of borrowed time and love and friendships and all of this stuff. So actually the, the context of production of the piece is like really intimate and really based on these like very small, like micro feminist transactions. And then it, it, I feel like the, the piece exudes all of this. I remember thinking it at the time. It's like, I felt like the piece kind of then pumps back out all of this kind of microfeminist attachment and affect and emotion. It pumps it back up to you. And that's maybe why so many people were crying and I, you know, but that sort of this juncture between like how the piece is perceived and how it was actually made. I think it's really, it was Adrian who made me think of it yesterday. And I'm very grateful for that because I, it's been years, you know, but, uh, and then to answer the last of your question, it will continue to tour. It's going to be in Athens in about, in a couple of weeks. And then it's going on a four venue U.S. tour in New York. 
uh, BAM and then mm. in Philadelphia, uh, Arkansas and LA and so on. And then it's going to come to London as well, which I'm really excited about. Maybe Istanbul too. Mm, okay, <laughs> that's interesting. Uh, that would be nice. Uh, but w- when it's touring, is it still on the infinite loop uh, idea or is more like performances? It's on the infinite loop idea, although COVID and the fact that most uh, inviting institutions, particularly festivals, need to ticket the piece, mm. that makes the loop a little bit more difficult to achieve because for COVID reasons, you had to get you know everybody in and then everybody out and then sanitize. Those kinds of things were really challenges. So the piece, mm. you could experience the pieces of one hour piece, but what we try every time is that even if it's a one hour ticket, you just won't have the experience of the beginning or of the end. Mm. Like you'll walk in as something is already happening and, and that, that moment of entry might change slightly so that the experience of an audience member is mm. not the same all the time. We have not done eight hours since Venice because it really almost killed the cast. So we're not going to do that anymore. <laughs> I was going to mention the labor, uh, yeah. the the ecology of labor as well. Yeah. And uh, that seems like I'm fairly certain that most of our audience is familiar with the piece, but it's a, a scene of a beach where like opera singers are lying on the sand and reciting songs that are, I think all of them or most of them are related to the environmental Uh, crisis or the Anthropocene and uh, issues like that is quite mesmerizing and it took the world by storm forgive the expression you mentioned it's coming from the artist but I had this question of the point of view I mean one question I had was the labor which I didn't intend to ask originally but the point came so I just mentioned it but the point of view of the audience and like how whether the distance was a deliberate or were there any discussions about that detachment from the audience so i'm curious about that like what was the decision process around that and this question of point of view kind of emerges and it's i think a valuable question i'm not suggesting it shouldn't have been distanced not at all but just curious how the thought process or the, whether there were discussions around that yeah so the piece was conceived to be seen from the top Uh, and the reason why the artists conceived it like that is that they were trying to think, they extended a kind of metonymical relationship between the lazy, tired bodies of the cast members or the people on, on a beach, mm-hmm. like hot, sweaty, lazy, tired, and the notion of an exhausted planet. And so the point of view was from the top in such, they, they talk about um, an entomologist looking down at insects. Mm-hmm. Or they've also talked about thinking about the point of view of the sun. Mm. And yet at the same time, that point of view is not detached enough for you to have a, an emotional detachment mm. from it. And I can, I can tell you phenomenologically how I experienced two different forms of attachment, detachment. One of them, which is being on the beach, which I did a ton of times and often in the tour as well, often with my son, um, being on the beach which feels very natural. You don't look at the audience. You don't think about the audience. The kids don't care. It's quite lovely, actually. <laughs> It's very calming, but you have a sense of immersion because you are immersed, it, immersed in it. So you are there as you would be on a beach, even though the songs make it slightly more emotional, but nevertheless. Uh, and that means that you're living these kind of micro moments, much like the song's lyrics. You're living these micro moments and those are the things that are immediately present. Like the kid has just spilled a thing or you need to kick that ball or that piece, that 
kid is going to kick some sand into the person next door. You don't have that sort of big picture, bigger, slightly bigger picture look at your own life or at, at the, and then you move up or you are up and you see these scenes and you're not detached enough to kind of fail to rec, you do recognize yourself in that scene somehow. Like you, it, it's intensely familiar and intimate and you kind of, you have a sense of recognition, but at the same time, that slight difference or distance allows you to have this like oceanic emergence of this feeling of like, <gasps> what it, like a life, a life, you know? Mm. So for me, for example, like the, the relationship with the notion of a child growing up or of one's own existence and the fleetingness of it or of, so it has that kind of emotionality that is not desperate. It's not tragic, but it's more like I've described it as like maybe the last day of your kid living at home before they move to go to a different country or to go to college or something like this. Like you're not desperate, but you have the sense of vastness of emotion that is just ever so slightly out of reach of like the daily in a, in a day to day situation, like on a Monday morning. And so that distance and closeness, I think plays a lot on the strings of the emotion more than even the artist maybe intended to when they were thinking about this top-down kind of sunshine mm. gaze. So it was a formal decision, but I think it sort of brings with it a phenomenological kind of soup yeah. that people must have felt. I, I'm assuming that I de definitely felt. And it's also, it's like the same contained environment. You are still in the same room, so to say, or you're still in the same volume. Because when you mentioned the view from above, I couldn't also help but think about, let's say, the powers of 10, like the mm -hmm. Ray and Charles Eames uh, movie, but also thinking about, again, the scientific gaze, quote unquote, and that kind of, and also the planners or the architects gaze, like planning from above kind of thing. But I think there is something else happening with the sound and maybe the humidity. I'm only imagining because the queues in Venice were so long. Like <laughs> I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't see it. And yeah. Yeah. I have to say, I think it's just so nice that you mentioned uh, powers of 10 and, and a kind of architect, scientists or planners gaze, because it made me think about, I suppose, quantum, not that I'm too a scientist. I have no idea what quantum theory actually is. But this notion that kind of emerges out of that kind of strand of research around the fact that the very notion, the very fact of observation of a phenomenon affects the phenomenon itself yeah. is, I think, really crucial here because I think the, the kind of mapping scientific top down architectural planner or that kind of gaze assumes that it's even possible to have that kind of distance. And if we go back to the kind of we're always within a within, I think what sentency does is actually, you know, yes, the act of observation affects the phenomenon that is being observed, but also the phenomenon itself affects the observer at the same time. And you know that because when you go to a museum and you look at a piece of art, it's looking back at you like in a really intense way. <laughs> and so that that relationship is like super mutual. And I think sentency sort of sprays that up and i think you're right in the heat and the humidity and the music and the in the phenomenology of it but it's but also in the kind of in the way that it, it's also like really not judgmental about the people you know this is like a bunch of people mostly sort of clearly at various degrees of privilege having kind of lazy times on the beach being like not realized 
there's like a wealthy woman who talks about visiting mm. all these different bleached coral reefs with her son and all that. A workaholic man. I mean, this is like all these people that you could look at and just go, this is a damning piece that, uh, that condemns the inaction of the, you know, paralyzed, privileged global north or whatever. But the piece, and the piece kind of makes you do that, but it doesn't do it itself. It has this like kindness with which it presents all these situations, this kind of self recognition almost. This, it doesn't try to force that in your face at all. And I think in that way, it's also a phenomenon that affects mm. you, that takes you more, that sort of takes you with, right? Almost like it drags you down from your mezzanine viewpoint. Mm. It makes you kind of collapse onto this beach. <laughs> Not literally. Yeah. No, interesting. And yeah, I mean, it's like, I think you mentioned Heisenberg and the kind of the observer's effect, but also again, like, again, I have not so much clue about quantum, but I think the simultaneity of different time zones, like looking at the stars and they are all actually appearances of different time uh, realities coming to you at different speeds. And I think all of that kind of resonates with the within a within explanation and also the question of interspecies also incorporates, I mean, our bodies, which we call like selves or individuals are also containing so many other uh, microorganisms and there's always a within a within. And also, again, I'm just kind of reflecting on what you just said, but also the, the anthropological question of the observers, I think a really crucial one in understanding and making meaning over subjects that were first positioned as the other, mm -hmm. but then the kind of introspective turn that the anthropology uh, as a discipline uh, went through is I always find quite fascinating because it then became something about the ethnographer or the observer mm -hmm. and her role, their role. So all of these things kind of resonated. And since we said within a within, uh, it might be also a good moment to call for comments or questions from within uh, this uh, Zoom session. <laughs> <laughs> so we have uh, Azra, Valentina, Simge, Gurkam, Jing, Ezgi and Sarp. Of course, no pressure, only if you have any questions or comments, this could be a good moment to open up. Lucia, if you want to say something first, of course, go ahead. This was is already a stimulating, super stimulating conversation. So let's open the floor. Highly conversations are recorded together with participants who can join in the conversation with their questions. If you'd also like to take part in these live gatherings, visit ahali.space and send us a line via email. Hello, teacher. Well, I have a personal and a professional question. So <laughs> maybe to start with the, let's say, more field-related one. So you brought up the IPCC report, and now that like it's a common knowledge that we are locked into a hotter future, right? Like it's only a matter of 1.5 Celsius degree of a change. So when we say it just like that, I mean it's very difficult to comprehend the gravity of the situation, right? So one needs to really look behind the numbers. So how do you think this could be rendered uh, more accessible in terms of language to a wider public, let's say? Oh, it's such a difficult question. <laughs> I wish 
I wish anyone had the answer to that. For sure, when you speak to individuals who are involved with the production of the IPCC report, this is one of the biggest questions that they raise. And one of the biggest places in which they say we absolutely need to collaborate with artists and with storytellers and with culture makers, essentially, to translate these things into tangible or sensible or enfleshed kind of perception of un- or understanding and so on. And so in a certain sense, I guess one possible answer to your question is like, this is why we're doing, we're kind of involved in the cultural field to an extent. The other thing is that there is a kind of deep reading that is possible of those, of these kinds of documents. I mean, I, I, I really did try. There's a summary of the previous IPCC report for policymakers, the one that looks at the difference of effects between one and a half and two degrees of warming. And I think in a particular way of looking at it, and again, this is if you're sitting in a house in London that is not currently affected by climate change. So it's, you know, you need to make this kind of cognitive leap. When it says that the difference between one and a half and two uh, degrees will affect the survival and, you know, or displace, de facto displace, or in some way endanger hundreds of millions of people, even just the effort of pausing on that number whilst you're reading and really like try, it doesn't make, you know, hundreds of millions of people doesn't mean anything as a number to a brain. But just to like deeply read that. And I think the more we get literate about climate disturbance, the more we get literate about climate justice, the more we get kind of used to hearing about this crisis without nihilism, without like letting go of everything and su- committing suicide, like without any of that, because that's the least useful thing one can possibly do. But like the more we get literate about that discourse, the more it's possible to then pause on these like deep reading moments, I think, make sense of those things. I remember speaking, I was speaking with um, someone who's involved in the st- in the Stop Ecocide movement uh, to try and get the notion of ecocide onto a kind of international criminal court level. And she was saying, well, you know, it's really about the word ecocide. Like the more the word ecocide becomes part of the general parlance, the more it is likely that the legal framework is going to adopt ecocide as a form of side, like as a, as a kind of killer. And so it's really like the rehearsal of these modes of thinking, these habits of mind, these modes of reflecting between, you know, without collapsing into nihilism, without collapsing into like, it's all, it's all about individual responsibility because it's really not like we're all really implicated and equally as entangled in systems that kind of define i mean we are even on computers that are made of mind materials that emerge out of conflict zones like we are so entangled with all of this you can't just like turn around and go i'm going to recycle until i die like that's not you know so without collapsing into only individual without collapsing into only nihilism like nothing can be changed because it's systemic without collapsing anywhere like holding this kind of balance is i think a very is it is kind of, i suppose it's like it's the rope between two mass tall buildings that we are walking right now. Like that's where we need to be walking right now. I, I think. Thank you. And like just as a follow-up question, would you have one advice for somebody like who who considers themselves as individuals who do nothing to prevent the impending, let's say, doom or the climate change, in other words? Start using ecocide as a phrase. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's like, 
I think it's really a question of interest. I mean, I I would never have entered this place of like deep, deep care for this environmental and political issue if I hadn't followed the like curiosity and joy of learning. It came from a place of pleasure, not a place of grief. It ended in a place of like deep alarm and grief. But, but, but my piece, I think it's the same piece of advice. It's like, how much, you know, what are the things that are interesting? Start from the point of interest, like read as much as possible. This habit of mind, anyway, it's staying. And also like discern between the various, there's like hundreds of different ways of approaching the subject and oftentimes in tension with one another. We're not all going to agree. Everything, every like micro response or solution is not going to be work across the board. Like all these kinds of, it's all so small and like so minimal and so fragile and so elastic. But there's always one point of entry. It's just about finding it. Well, it's not to, <laughs> to use less plastic than uh, more, a lot more elaborate. That too, that too. Huh? Like there's also some really practical things that, that, but I think like cognitively and emotionally and spiritually, there's a little bit of work that. Yeah. I think the point is that in itself, uh, like the act of recycling or less plastic in and of itself is not enough, but there needs to be like a wider discussion. I mean, I don't know if you experienced this, but sometimes in WhatsApp groups or family meetings. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, you end up bumping into the wrong people or let's say not let's not call them wrong but definitely definitely i mean it does happen but also and also just you know and i'm saying this as much to myself as to anybody but to just kind of avoid the mistake that a lot of environmental movements have m- made for many decades which is to completely separate the notion of like justice and social justice away from like environmental conservation or something like this because it polarized two movements that actually are completely entangled with one another if you look at the Dakota Access Pipeline or if you look at the kind of uneven distribution of toxicity around the world and how it divides itself ar- across the same lines of like race, class and gender as everything else as wealth does as everything else and so to start to think of those things as really connected even when an individual might not experience those things directly I think is like it's kind of a responsibility that we all should remember <laughs> Yeah. And also maybe, I mean, just one term that kind of sparked throughout all this discussion and what we've been touching upon, both what you just recently said and also points of view, different, let's say, disciplinary formations trying to speak one another, different positionings, different frames of mind or institutional frames. It got me thinking about the notion of interface. And in a way, I see what Like, for example, a program like General Ecology is becoming not interface in the sense of a screen, but a medium, you know, that kind of is traveling in between these positions somehow and trying to create interfaces. And I think that's like a real valuable. Uh, yeah, I think the, the, the hope is for it to be very distributed. I think like there's one of the things that I've noticed with that whole institution work is that institutions are like slow and sluggish and set in their ways and even myself like the fact that i've been 12 years at the serpentine means that sometimes change comes and i'm like i don't like it then i'm like why <laughs> you know because we crystallize like minerals we make these crystals of ourselves and so in the context of like an institution that if it needs to turn like a massive boat it takes kilometers to be able to turn and so it needs to see the iceberg like <laughs> really long far away in order to even start to make the move the what i hoped the general ecology would be is more like an enzyme or a catalyst 
and therefore to be much more capable of being distributed, of being residency in different places, of like trying stuff out in different spaces. And, you know, between like an enzyme and a virus and a micro institution and something a little bit more, I suppose to use the tech vocabulary, the word agile comes to mind. And that that's the intention of distributing. But we'll see, you know, it's also like, I am alone. So all these big ambitions might take like 20 years to realize, we'll see. Well, you are uh, assuming you are alone. I'm sure you are not, so. <laughs> oh, I mean, I'm never alone. There's like everything from like an enormous amount of friends and collaborators all the way through to like the bacteria and the plants in my house. But um, let's say that like setting up the whole operation, it might just, it might have to start very tentatively. Cool. Start again. Like it might have to just kind of keep emerging in a very tentative small way. And... Do we have uh, other questions or comments? We are directing the uh, an international performance art platform, Perform Istanbul. Uh, and so uh, our questions will be more centered on performance art and also how do you place performance art in your practice? Because we believe that performance art has this strong, I mean, it has, it's like a strong and powerful tool uh, to express some concepts, to gather people, to heal, to share emotions, feelings, etc. And uh, I think there is a reason why you did not choose to curate uh, the Lutetian Pavilion by presenting a video installation of this work, but, you know, curating a live work. So how do you situate performance art discipline in your practice? Uh, and also you talked about a little bit the ecology of labor, etc. I mean, we are working a lot on long durational works and we know how it's difficult to present performance art and long durational works in museums, galleries and similar art institutions because their infrastructure are not ready to welcome human body and to take care of the human body, even if everything, you know, they have all the techniques for, you know, exhibiting sculptures, paintings, etc. So, yeah, I would be very happy if you could answer those questions. Thank you so much. So the first, I think, was about the role of performance art within or the place that it occupies within my practice, I suppose, across time. It's definitely professionally where I emerge from is a space of time-basedness, whether it have was performance art or, in fact, the discursive. I never really dis disconnected the two only because it was my job to do both. So I kind of always thought of them in the same space, which had to do with people in space experiencing something in time. And in a sense, that's something that I'm also like profoundly committed to still. There is a little bit of like, I don't remember what it feels like to do that, right? A year and a half after not having been able to do it anymore. There's something quite painful about not being able to do And And I think that we, with the, I mean, I'm, about to say something really obvious, but with the kind of, we've gained so much possibility with things like Zoom and remote participations and things and kind of forgot to take stock of all the things that we've also lost. And I think it will be up to performance work to really kind of start to recover those threads of embodiment and, you know, maybe like the erotics of being together, even like the subtleties of body movement, the smell of the room, like all those things that make a much more complete communication I guess or form of exchange or form of love like for me it's all everything is kind of love anyways but <laughs> so so from that point of view it might just be that performance has a big role in general to play 
in terms of like reconnecting people post pandemic, for example, and or like gather being the occasion upon which people reconnect. And then in terms of the economies of labor, I mean, I can, I can, I can only agree with you like a hundred percent that having worked in art institutions on performance and it's not the fault of a museum. You know, when a museum was built, it was never built with the idea that it needed to have showers for the sculptures, but it, but showers and access to resting spaces and the kinds of budget that sustain the life, lives of people are completely different from the economies of, of the museum infrastructure. And so some museums and galleries and art organizations manage to handle that better than others. Some that are, the, that have been built more recently maybe are more bespoke, blah, blah, blah. The way that the Serpentine resolved, that I resolved that at the Serpentine or that the Serpentine resolved that for itself was actually in part to try and run as much of the live and time-based program as possible outside of its walls. So for me, the public programs and live programs strand of the Serpentine always needed to be almost like a production infrastructure that was always distributed across uh, different spaces. And of course, it goes without saying that kind of learning from the models of like dance and theater worlds is really, really important in terms of things like even just, you know, collaborating together to sustain an R&D period, which doesn't exist at all when you invite a you know, I mean, I've I've been guilty of this myself. You invite an artist that works through performance and you offer like 300 pounds to do a thing. But like the six months of development that happened before, are like totally out of the institutional responsibility remit. And so recently, what tends to have happened then is that I keep I've. I'm doing, I'm working on all these different projects in different places in the world, but I keep working with the same like four or five artists because actually what I'm working with is like the long-term projects that they're presenting. And then it draws down into these different forms of presentations in the different institutions. But like finally the kind of box is not the gallery space, but the box is like the, the piece of the life of the artist and the project that, and everything else kind of puts itself around it and underneath it like a jigsaw puzzle. Turning that on its head means that I actually work with very few artists now. It, which in a, in a sense is like a shame, but it, in another sense, is, it has also kind of has fostered much deeper relationships. That's interesting. And I, I mean, I'll just say there is always a kind of spirit of invention in how you position your practice with regards to the possibilities or shortcomings that the context posits. And so in a way, the way to sustain those practices is obviously a bypass. I mean, it's uh, like, but it's still like the fact that you are mentioning it here now also points to the fact that there is a shortcoming with regards to especially the economic dimension and livelihood surrounding artistic activity, especially for those practitioners who are not kind of participating in one or more markets, because that that's the kind of false assumption of the museum or the institution that the work that an artist does can be then circulated in the market and they will anyway have a livelihood around that. I think most institutions tend to hide behind that to uh, overcome their lack of providing a sustainable... <laughs> A hundred percent. And actually, I think that it, the, the crisis now is like triply deep for particularly public art institutions, because you've had a kind of dependence on footfall attendance to physical space that has completely sucked, been sucked away for a year and a half. You had a dependence, you had a, a sort of uh, 
lack of investment into kind of long-term research or long-term, I mean, not across the board, obviously there's institutions doing amazing things and have been doing them for ages, but lack of kind of investment in long-term research and lack of kind of self-awareness of self-knowledge that are then brought into questions by kind of social justice movements and, and political movements. And you have the development and increasing birth of private foundations that are de facto taking the place of museums. So instead of funding public institutions, private foundations can make museums. So why would then public... So there's like a, there's like a crisis all over the place. And for me, in those spaces of deep crisis exists also a sort of necessity to Im imagine or conceive of one's like purpose. You know, when you're in a deep crisis, you want to find your sense of purpose. And one of the things I've been working on is how can we add that piece of purpose that is environmental justice and balance to the sense of purpose of an art institution in a moment of crisis. And what, you know, to praise the Serpentine for its willingness to jump into these unknowns and support these kinds of endeavors, what we've managed to achieve with the General Ecology and the Back to Earth project, which is this project that invited artists to propose uh, artworks that are also environmental campaigns and then supported them and is supporting them is basically that over the last 18 months the Serpentine has been like supporting indirectly or in some ways like film commissions but also like the establishment of particular nature reserves in in places and uh, like movements around uh, energy transition and like legal frameworks mm -hmm. writing and all this other stuff partly because it didn't have an exhibition to kind of focus on, partly because we called them all artworks. And so it sort of passed, partly because it was just willing to jump into these world, to not ask itself the question of like, does this fit within our realms? Which I think, for example, museums with collections have a much harder time doing. So there's like this, I think, reckoning with that crisis and making of that crisis a kind of renewed sense of, you know, stepping back into the world as an institution, I think is really, 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 really important. True. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, so maybe one one last call for uh, comments and questions and then can aim at closing today's super interesting conversation. I wanted to maybe also bring something up that I feel it has been coming up through the conversation, the idea of how art is enters in relation with science in the basis of communication, of the urgencies and the reality of pressing matters, but also the part of the fictions and the relation of science, science fictions, and how also art provides this space that I think it's much needed for the imagination. But I think it also came up in different levels, institutional levels, as you have said. So also to bring to the public this idea, this shift of perspective, because I think something that is very difficult to achieve is not only the communication of complex matters, but also being able to imagine different futures, no? to start deconstructing and reshaping institutions, but also behaviors and, and an individual level. So I think, I don't know, I bring this question of fiction in the broadest of the senses to, to discuss ecology and how we can achieve this idea of the general ecology in all the levels. Yeah, I love the, the comments that you've just made and it, they brought to mind something. And so I'm uh, quoting my colleague, Ashish Gadiali, who's a filmmaker uh, and current activist in residence at UCL and with whom 
my other colleague, Amal Khalaf, who is curator of Civic at the Serpentine, and I are working together with Ashish on a climate justice sort of long-term research project and symposium that will happen at the end of October in Dartington, which is in the southwest of England. And there's something really, really, really powerful in the way that he put a kind of intuition to the table, which had to do that with the fact that um, futurism or future thinking was already a mode of organizing, political organizing. I mean, he is a political organizer in infinitely more ways than I could ever consider myself to be, you know, but sort of that future thinking is already a form of organizing and that organizing is already a form of future thinking. And I just love that kind of double thing because then you can see the, you know, not necessarily the responsibilities, but sort of the agencies embedded in science fiction and in imagination in general. And I remember another conversation that I had with a colleague, Ben Vickers, who works more on the kind of digital, kind of how to insert artistic thinking in advanced technology worlds. And I remember having this conversation of like, does science, did those writers predict the world, you know, the iPads and the, the kind of the shape of technology today? Or did they rather write some things that were then read by impressionable 12 year olds? who then found themselves designing the technology of today. And so how do you definitely know for sure that the images of the future that you kind of put out into the world are not going to then kind of world a world themselves, given brain plasticity, given children experiencing the world, kind of given the fact that children remake the world every morning in the shape in which they are aware that it is, right? So sort of the coordinates of what the world is like. My son, the a really funny experience, like my son has been on the sun and sea beach since he was one and a half years old. So in his life, he assumes that there exist two different kinds of beaches. One of them where there's people above and people sing and all the adults play with him. And the other one with the sea and you get wet and all the other adults don't want to play with him. And that's the, that's the world of a child. Like it makes itself in the shape in which it has been. And that it's true on, you know, infinitely more traumatic levels as well. So those kinds of like messages for me, and I suppose like art, storytelling, poetry, mythology, messaging, imagination, science fiction, all of them kind of fall within this category of like both kind of deeply embedding the now, holding the deep memory of the deep past, throwing these messages in the bottle into the deep future. Like they have this incredible kind of four dimensional capability and almost magic to them, which is, I guess, why we... So many of us in this conversation probably are living in this world, right? Because there's a kind of, or in this field. Yeah. No, that was beautiful. I just wanted to kind of underline the question of fiction and in relation to what you just said about magic. And I heard you somewhere said like metaphors are real and these processes of worlding or like speculative fabulation in the way Donna Haraway talks about it. I think they all kind of intercollide in the way we can imagine imagination and how processes of worlding occur. And on another level, totally different level, one of our upcoming episodes, we discussed with Dennis Maximum about the Oracle of Delphi and the kind of the institution of the think tank or the think tank as an institutional format. And he is suggesting that actually by suggesting indirectly the directions to go, the Oracle of Delphi was in fact writing the future in the sense that it led certain decisions and think tanks most often operate on a similar basis uh, where like there's an opaque 
a decision process, but eventually it's a matter of suggesting a route or suggesting a possible future and the decision makers follow that. And by following that, in a way, certain aspects of the future are written and that maybe then gives us some clues about where to plug in <laughs> other discussions and other possibilities to change. You know, it might be like a really romantic thing to, well, it's not that, if you think about the work that Judith, it's actually not romantic at all, it's super practical. If you think about the work that Judith Butler did on hate speech, for example, in which she really kind of drew out the way in which hate speech is tangible form of harm. And then, but then from the romantic part of this is like maybe on a quantum, like definitely on a quantum level, metaphors are material because language is a form of vibration because it is received by bodies to bodies. Like there is actual like physical ontologies to all of these things anyways. And so I think absolutely like the Oracle makes the future also because of our innate capacity to innate kind of tendency to attend to predictions mm -hmm. by making them real or attend to predictions by fighting as, against them as much as possible. I mean, you, the relationship with our parents is like all that. <laughs> like it's all implicated in those kinds of like, how do we attend to predictions or to the oracle as well? So yeah, totally. Great. Thank you. The question will be very brief because I already formulated. I really meant to ask it some time ago to Filippa. And it really make as much sense to ask this to you. Uh, like, what's your ethical take on plant ownership when you think it's industrial intersections? And tied to that question, like, do you have any plants? Like, what's your favorite plants? Or like, what was your like first plant? I also to know these personal things. Thank you. Oh, that is such a it's a difficult question followed by a very beautiful question. Plant ownership. I need to think about it a little bit. There's definitely a very vast difference between like an individual relationship, which might be the kind of relationship of great love and care with a particular plant and with questions of like land ownership, which transform themselves into like industrial monocultures and the kinds of environmental devastations of those. Although I think there is probably a piece of research that would be quite interesting to be done about sort of ornamental plants, tropical plants being used indoors, being sort of grown indoors in like colder climates and colder countries as ornaments and all this like what are the politics of all of those plants also arriving in those places so for example the duo cooking sections did a fantastic work on the sort of timings and arrivals and politics of this plant japanese knotweed which is part of like the rye family um in the uk because these days if you have japanese knotweed and growing in your garden there's like such a stigma attached to it that you can't even get a mortgage on that house so and it's illegal to let your garden grow Japanese knotweed, uh, even as a as an invasive, even if it comes from the neighbors, for example, you have to eradicate it. it costs a lot of money. There's like a whole industrial complex around it. And they did this fantastic work of tracing the emergence and arrival of all these non-native plants into the Victorian gardens because of these Victorian constru complete construction of the notion of a wildness being this like mashup of these different plants from different parts of the world kind of brought into a British back garden. And so that this colonial kind of imaginary creates this, this construction of nature, of the idea of nature in the UK. And they put it together. They do this. They did this great lecture performance in which they really thought also at the same time about the development of passports and the movement of people across borders and how kind of forms of uh, anti-immigration feelings or racism and xenophobia kind of develop themselves around the same time as this like mythologized 
natural kind of garden design thing happens. So again, we come back to, I think there's something, I, it's not a piece of work that I've done. I'm kind of asking this as a question more than giving you any form of answer, but it's a reflection on, like, I think there's probably something that involves plant ownership and ornamental plants, particularly that is like deeply rooted in the history of empire, for instance. And as far as my favorite plant, I think I probably would have to quote, to cite trees. I was very touched by uh, Richard Power's book, The Overstory, because of the way that it connected so deeply the history of individual trees with people's individual lives. And I have those trees in my life. I have a cherry tree that still is alive in my grandparents' house in the countryside that I used to sort of climb, <laughs> you know, and those things kind of, I have, there's a chestnut tree that I hurt myself on a million times. So there, it's just a, these trees. And I was very fortunate to be able to go back to that, to those trees this just about a month ago and realize that they were all still there. Perhaps that's a really beautiful point to close today's meeting. Thanks so much for joining us, Lucia. Thanks everyone for their valuable questions and comments. Azra, Sarp, Valentina, most appreciated. And uh, hope to see you next time. And hope to see you sometime in the future, Lucia. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you all. Thank you for joining us and staying until the very end. Ahali Conversations are produced by Asla Altay and Sarp Rengözer. And with this episode, Daria Yildiz joins our team as associate producer. This episode was engineered by Elif Soğuksu with music by Group Ses. Make sure to check out our show notes to find out more about what we've discussed today. There's an extensive list of links and information down there. You can also visit us at ahali.space or get some visual insights at Instagram via ahali.podcast. I guess it goes without saying, but we really appreciate you spreading the word and supporting us by subscribing, rating, following, or whatever works for you. This was Ahali Conversations with me, Jan Altay, and we hope to see you next time. Mm-hmm.